Hello, and welcome to the Turkish History Podcast, Episode 2, Go West, Young Man. So last time, we discussed the origins of the Turks, Uman's revolt, and the founding of the Göktürk Khanate, the first Turkish state. We left the story with Buman dead at the crowning moment of his life, the conquest of the Ruran Khanate. But at this stage, all the Turks have done is topple the Ruran. We'll talk next time about what happens in the east, and how the Turks consolidated their power over Inner Asia and replaced the Ruran. Today, however, we're going to talk about something far more important in the long run to our story. Remember, even though we've basically been on the borders of China this whole time, the point of this podcast is Turkish history, not Turkic history. That is, the history of the Turks of today's Turkey, who of course live far to the west of China. What we're talking about today is the beginning of that journey west, and it starts with the stunning westward conquests of the Turkic Khanate immediately following the death of Bumin. This is also sort of a seminal moment in Eurasian history. One of the key features of Eurasian history is that up to until like 500 years ago, every now and again, hordes of steppe nomads would just explode out of Central and Inner Asia and invade Europe, the Middle East, and India. The Chinese, by virtue of geography and the proximity of the Yellow River Valley to the steppes, didn't have this happen every now and again. They sort of lived next to the source and had to build huge walls in an attempt to avoid this happening just all the time. Now, this has happened a couple of times prior to the Turks. The Indo-Europeans, the Scythians, the Sarmatians, the Huns, and so on. But prior to the Turks, these steppe invaders, these steppe empires even, did not manage to politically unite the whole steppe world. The Turks created the first politically united steppe empire encompassing virtually the whole Eurasian steppe, from Ukraine to China, from the Black Sea to the Pacific Ocean. So how did this happen? To go back to what we've said before, steppe states grow in complexity and political sophistication in direct proportion to the complexity and scale of their neighboring sedentary states. And Western Eurasia, in this time period, having recovered from the crises of the 3rd century, had formed some truly sophisticated and powerful states. Now, just like the history of the Chinese, The history of Rome and the Iranians is way beyond the scope of this podcast. I'd of course recommend the amazing History of Rome and History of Byzantium podcast, as well as the Great History of Persia podcast if you're interested in learning more. But I'm briefly going to describe the growth and centralization of these states as it mattered to the coming conquest of the Turks. I'm going to be simplifying and omitting a lot here. The purpose of this is just to get the main players on the board and explain the background of the coming Turkish Khanate in the West. So my goal here is to go east to west and bring us up to date, and then explain the overall geopolitical situation in western Eurasia on the eve of the first Turkish conquests. So we start with the Heftalites. We've briefly mentioned the Heftalites before. They broke off from the Xiongnu as the confederation collapsed as part of the Hunnic westward expansion. But while the Huns that would trouble Rome kept going west, the Heptalites, or the White Huns as they are sometimes called, took over Sogdiana and the Silk Road cities of Central Asia. They were therefore perched just to the north of the Iranian plateau in the Hindu Kush and the civilizations of Iran, Afghanistan, and India. 
They then formed relationships with those sedentary civilizations, similar to those formed by the Bay or the Ruran and the settled Chinese civilization to the east. The Heftalites probably take their name from a ruler called Heftal, who came to power after Bahram, a powerful Sassanid Shah, successfully defended Iran from their attacks. The Heftalites came to use Bactrian, in Iranian language, as an administrative and prestige language. By the 5th century at the latest, the Heptalites had also formed some sort of submissive relationship with the Ruran, but it's hard to tell exactly the nature of this relationship or the timing. The Heptalites continued to probe Sassanid defenses in Iran and continued raiding into Iran, and Sassanid contenders for power came to look to these steppe warriors to aid in their domestic political struggles. In the late 4th century, Heptalite power came into the ascendancy under a powerful leader named Akshunwar. Akshunwar assisted Shah Peroz in defeating his brother Hormizd and seizing the throne of Iran, and the Heptalites became essentially overlords of the Sassanids. This proved to be temporary, and the Sassanids managed to throw off the Heptalite yoke by the time of the Turkish expansion. Despite losing dominance over Iran, the Heptalites were still a powerful confederation in the early 6th century, having supreme control over Bactria, Sogdiana, and Central Asia from their base of power in what is now northern Afghanistan. Which brings us to the Sassanids. As we discussed earlier, it's hard to get a good idea of how the Sassanids came to replace the Parthians. The short story is that the Parthian Empire, led by the Arasid dynasty, was far less centralized than either the Romans or the Han dynasty. As the Parthian political system collapsed during the crisis of the 3rd century in Eurasia, one of the local rulers in Iran named Ardashir launched a revolt against the Arasids. Ardashir was based in the province of Fars, coincidentally the same area from which Cyrus the Great had launched his initial conquest millennia before to form the Achaemenid Persian Empire, the original Persian Empire. Ardashir's consolidation of power was continued by his son Shapur. There's going to be a lot of Shapurs, by the way, so this is just Shapur I, who ended up conquering Bactria and Mesopotamia in the mid-3rd century. This was also the start of perpetual wars with Rome. The Romans and the Sassanids would go to war basically every 10 to 20 years and vie for power over Armenia and Arabia. Shapur famously defeated the Romans and captured the Emperor Valerian. By the early 4th century, the Sassanids had entered into a golden age, expanding their influence into Arabia and across the Silk Road and up into Armenia and Georgia. There were problems, however, and they continued to have contentious dealings with the steppe peoples on their northern border, many of whom were Turkic tribes of smaller confederations. Additionally, their destructive struggles with Rome were constant. Under Bahram IV in the mid-4th century, Sassanid power again increased, and the Sassanids reasserted their power in southern Central Asia, into the Indus Valley, and up into the Caucasus. The Sassanids entered into a second golden age, but eventually, in the late 4th and early 5th centuries, as we just discussed, the Sassanids suffered a series of defeats at the hands of the Heftalites. Kavad I, though brought to power by the Heftalites, managed to break Iran free from their influence and rule. Kavad I inherited an empire on the decline and subservient to the Heftalites, and instituted a series of administrative reforms to weaken the power of the nobility and the Zoroastrian clergy, which eventually led to a noble revolt, in which Kavad was briefly deposed. Upon taking power back from the usurper Jamas with Heftalite assistance, Kavad started a war with Rome between 502 and 506. 
Around 513, Kavad went to war with the Heptalites and defeated them, essentially freeing Iran from their influence and domination. But Kavad was getting old and declared his son Khosrau to be his heir. Roman refusal to recognize this inheritance proclamation led to yet another war beginning in about 528, which was particularly vicious. But then, in 531, Kavad died and was succeeded by his son and chosen successor, Khosrau I. Khosrau inherited an empire in a grievous war with Rome over his own legitimacy. In time, he would go down in history as one of the greatest shahs in Iranian history, but in a lot of ways he was building on Kavad's work, and his very successes would ultimately sow the seeds of the Sassanid Empire's undoing. Finally, turning far to the west, the Roman Empire, alone out of all of the three great classical Eurasian empires, survived the crisis of the 3rd century, but in surviving, it was entirely transformed. The old model of the Principate was replaced by the highly centralized, militarized dominant with a powerful and royal empire. No longer was the emperor just the first citizen of a nominal republic. He was now a divinely appointed monarch. After Emperor Diocletian created the so-called Tetrarchy, the empire was slowly, over time, split into eastern and western halves. Now, these were not really politically independent units. The Romans did not see these as two states, really, but as split administrations. Gradually, they diverged though they remained connected and occasionally under one-man rule, such as under Emperor Constantine and under Emperor Theodosius. In the east, Constantine the Great founded Constantinople, which in time will become very, very central to our story. The eastern half of the empire not only survived, but prospered and entered into a new golden age. The western half, however, fared far more poorly and effectively delegated itself out of existence to the Germanic invaders and occupiers, who themselves had been pushed out of Eastern Europe by the Huns. In 476, the Goth general Odoacer deposed the Western Emperor Romulus Augustulus, and informed the Eastern Emperor that there was no need for a replacement. He would govern Italy in the Eastern Emperor's name. No need to bother, really. It's not a problem. I can handle it. However, at the same time that the Turks under Bumin were finding their footing and challenging the Ruran, a particularly effective emperor came to power in the east. Justinian the Great, born to a Balkan soldiering family, ascended to the throne in 527. As we just discussed, this is about the time the Sassanids and the Romans were beginning their war in 528, just as both Rome and Iran had new rulers. In 532, Justinian and Kavad agreed to the quote-unquote perpetual peace, which lasted about eight years. In these eight years of perpetual peace, Justinian centralized control over the state, beginning building the Hagia Sophia, and began a project that he would be forever remembered for, the attempt to reunite the empire under his generalissimo Belisarius. Justinian and Belisarius would go on to eventually lead a reconquest of Italy, North Africa, and parts of Spain. However, further advances were stopped by an outbreak of the Black Death between 540 and 549, the first in recorded history and probably brought from Central Asia. Justinian himself fell ill, though he survived. But the empire had spent heavily, and by the time of his death was overextended and locked into conflict with its neighbors. In 540, after eight years of perpetual peace, the Romans and the Sassanids again went to war. The cause was influence over Armenia and the Arabian tribes of the desert bordering Mesopotamia. Khosrau invaded Roman territory in 540, and the war quickly expanded. 
Persian forces invaded modern-day Georgia in 541 and advanced across Mesopotamia and Arabia. Belisarius was then recalled from Italy to fight by Justinian and was successful. A five-year truce was agreed upon in 545, but it proved short-lived, and by 549, Rome and the Sassanid Empire were back in full-scale war. As mentioned before, despite losing control over the Sassanid Empire 50 years earlier, the Heftalites were still a force to be reckoned with. And in the early 550s, they again began to put pressure on the Sassanids. It's unclear if they made a deal with the Romans to do this, but it seems likely. This war, the Lazic War, was long and brutal, but finally came to an end in 556 with the so-called 50-year peace treaty. Obviously, this great 50-year peace treaty only lasted for like 12 years, which was actually pretty good for Roman-Persian peace treaties. It turns out that 50 years is actually longer than forever when it comes to Roman and Persian peace treaties. Under the treaty, Persian forces would leave Georgia in exchange for an annual payment of gold from the Romans. So this was the situation of Western Eurasia immediately following Bumin's death. Rome and Persia each ruled by a powerful and great emperor and shah, the Hephthalites, mighty and in control of Bactria and Sogdiana. But despite this greatness, the building of great churches and palaces, the three states were at near constant war and were rocked by disease. The emergence of the Black Death caused massive death across Iran and the Byzantine Empire. Additionally, the climate began acting up again. In the year 537, chroniclers from Ireland to China noted extreme cold, crop failures, and famine. They said the sun shone, but it gave no warmth. Modern historians think that there may have been massive volcanic eruptions somewhere on Earth, throwing ash up into the air and disrupting the global climate. Climatic change, war, and disease led to years of bad harvests, further exacerbating the problems. And during these tough years, the settled empires were also spending like drunken dilettantes on palaces, cathedrals, reconquests of Italy, invasions of Georgia, and so on. So these states were strong, but in some ways also very fragile. And into this environment rode a people from the east. The Turkish conquests were led by Bumin's younger brother Ishtami as Yabgu. But as Yabgu, he conquered under the theoretical overlordship of Mukan, his nephew. So the West started off as the poor stepchild of the East. Lesser conquests when compared to the Eastern conquests we'll discuss next time. And this makes sense. The Turks came from that Eastern Asian civilizational sphere, which rotated around China. Eventually, when the Khanate split between East and West, it would be this division, the Junior West asserting its equality, that would be the basis of the split. But that's not for a couple episodes. For now, it appears that Ishtami, the Yabgu, had the rule of the western parts of the Turkic Khanate, and launched these campaigns on his own initiative. It is likely that his authority on the steppe, even if it was just an acknowledgement of superiority at this point, extended at most as far west as the Aral Sea, encompassing, in other words, the southern steppe zone of modern-day Kazakhstan and the mountains of Kyrgyzstan. The valuable Silk Road cities of the south, in Sogdiana, were still under Heptolite rulership, you know, for now. The opening salvo of this western war was against the Heptolites. But I don't think we should approach this with the ending point in mind. I don't think that it occurred to Ishtami, or to anyone else at the time, that they would unite the whole steppe world and conquer as far as Ukraine. I doubt they even knew in concrete terms that Ukraine existed. Most probably, their conception of the West was limited to Sogdiana and Bactria, 
knowing that Iran and India lay to the south and that a larger inland sea, the Caspian, lay to the west. Maybe they would have heard rumors of an even larger sea, further to the west, beyond which lay the fabled cities of the Roman Empire. So why go after the Hephthalites in the first place? I think there were basically three reasons. First, the Hephthalites were formerly, at least nominally, the subjects of the Ruran. And that means that if you're the new management taking over the Ruran Khanate, you want them to bend the knee and acknowledge who was in the corner office right now. But I also think that economics were just as much, if not more, a part of it. Remember that the Turks were key players on the Silk Road and derived a lot of their economic power from their relationship to the Sogdian city-states. The same Sogdian city-states on the Silk Road that the Hephthalites pushed around and claimed lordship over. So I think it was critical for the Turks to lock that down. The third reason has to do with Ishtami and the Turkic political structure. Ishtami was the uncle of the Khan, his nephew Mukan. As Yabgu, he had a lot of power, but he's still number two. He had been given the West to administer, and therefore, how was he going to expand his power and influence? By raiding and conquering, and he can only conquer westwards. Mukan no doubt also approved and encouraged this. By Ishtami going west, he would also be removing a potential source for instability for the new Khanate. You can't really launch a civil war if you're thousands of miles away in Central Asia. So how did Ishtami start? In all likelihood, incursions into Heptalite territory began at least as early as 553 with the death of Bumin. Indeed, it could have been even earlier under Bumin's command. The Hephthalites were in name allies and subjects of the Ruran, but it was a steppe alliance, in which the Hephthalites nominally accepted that the Ruran were in some sense higher ranked than they were. Most likely what happened is that the Hephthalites refused to accept the results of the Kurultai proclaiming Bumin as the Ilig Khan. As a result, relations became tense and grew into an all-out war. But Ishtami realized that he could make a powerful alliance against the Hephthalites, and so he sent emissaries to the Sassanids. Now remember, the Sassanids had just concluded a peace treaty with Rome, and were now looking to deal with the Hephthalites, who had either worked with the Romans, or had just taken advantage of the war with the Romans to attack the northeastern frontier of Iran. So Ishtami sent messengers to the Sassanid court, to sound them out on an alliance to defeat the Hephthalites. Unfortunately, there are no contemporaneous surviving Sassanid sources of first contact with the Turks. The Shahnameh the great Persian Book of Kings, written by Ferdowsi 500 years later, says, quote, The emperor of China, by which he means Ishtami, went to war with Iran's neighbors in Sogdia, and he and Khosrau, although mutually suspicious of each other, concluded a treaty of friendship, end quote. Now, the mutual suspicion, at least, is real enough. Remember, Iran had been under Hephthalite overlordship in the days of Shah Khosrau's father, Kavad, and had a long history of dealing with the steppe world to its north. They were always going to be suspicious of the nomads. Meanwhile, the nomads would always be suspicious of the settled peoples they bordered. Settled empires had always tried to dominate the steppe, break up steppe confederations by pitting the tribes against each other. But for now, their interests aligned. And by 557, when the Turks were already at war with the Hephthalites, the Sassanids and Ishtami concluded an agreement. The Sassanids and the Turks initially agreed to a two-pronged attack, but it appears that their armies actually ended up linking up to fight the Hephthalites as one. The two sides met in battle in 560 at Gölzaryun near Bukhara. Unfortunately, we don't have reliable accounts of what happened in the battle. There is one Roman source, roughly contemporaneous, 
that cryptically mentions that one of the Hephthalite kings defected to the Turks, but we can't be too sure about this. The writer certainly wasn't there at the time, and any info he had would have been secondhand. But at any rate, such defections were not unusual for steppe confederations. We can imagine that the combination of steppe archers, Iranian heavy cavalry, infantry, maybe even the famed Sassanid war elephants being just devastating. Whatever the details, the result is not in question. The Hephthalites were crushed. Hephthalite power was shattered by this Iranian and Turkish victory. There would be Hephthalite and Hephthalite-descended kingdoms in existence in Afghanistan for centuries, but never again would the Hephthalites be a mighty steppe empire. As they had done with the Ruran, the Turks had done with the Hephthalites. Under the terms of the Turkish-Persian Treaty, Turkish power now extended south over the Silk Road cities of Sogdiana, with the Sassanids assuming control over modern-day Afghanistan and Central Asia south of the Amudarya River, also called the Oxus. This is the long-acknowledged border between Iran on the one hand and the steppe world on the other, or Transoxiana, as the steppe world is often called. Shah Khosrau also took a Turkish princess as a bride as one of the treaty terms. The Shahnameh mentions this episode, and has Ishtami saying, quote, The Persian king is like a brother to me, and my alliance with him is not simply for my daughter's sake. I have always heard from those who are wise and noble, and from priests who have insight into such matters, about his glory and greatness, and that is why I have sought to be allied with him. I have sent my child to King Kesra, according to our custom, and I have told her to act as his slave, as is fitting when she is in his woman's quarters, imbibe wisdom from his glory, and to learn his court's ceremonies and manners. May good fortune and wisdom guide you, and may greatness and knowledge be your support. End quote. But the Turks were not just fighting the Hephthalites. They were fighting a two-front war also against the steppe peoples to the west. So simultaneously in the late 550s and early 560s, the Turks expanded their rule west across the steppe in a series of stunning conquests. And, as we'll discuss next time, the eastern half of the Khanate directly under Khan Mukhan's control was also expanding in the east. So how did the western steppe conquests work? The steppe confederations that the Turks were fighting were far smaller than the Hephthalites and far less cooked, as the Chinese would have said. I think we should imagine this process taking place in stages. First one tribe, then another is forced to submit. Some do so because of the fearsome reputation of the Turks, some do so willingly, others are conquered in small battles, overawed by the power of this new and far more organized and sophisticated steppe empire. Unfortunately, our sources are scarce, so our knowledge of the specifics is lacking. The great stone inscriptions the Second Turkish Khanate would come to erect centuries later say only that Ishtami conquered, quote, to the west, as far as the Temir Kapa, which means the Iron Gates, but they don't really provide us with further details. Though it's not certain, the Iron Gates could mean the Caucasus Mountains between the Black Sea and the Caspian. We do have oblique mentions of the Turkish conquests in the records of the Byzantines, echoes and rumors of a great wave of conquest filtering into Constantinople from the faraway steppes, of tribes fleeing the onslaught of a new and mighty enemy. According to the Roman sources, the Alans and various Oryk Turkic peoples had submitted to the Turkish Khanate by the early 570s, but retained some form of their own tribal rule. And this fits with the model of the Turkish Khanate established on the Chinese borderlands and brought west by the Turks. A central administration, authority over foreign relations and war in the hands of the Khan and the Yabgu, but traditional tribal authorities left in place beneath them. 
but not everyone submitted. The Turkish advance drove other steppe peoples in front of it like a wave, similar to what had happened with the Huns pushing the Germanic tribes into the Roman Empire. A wave of fleeing steppe tribes, terrified and unwilling to submit, they began flooding west. Most notable among these were a portion of the Avars, with whom the Turkish Khanate went to war at the same time that they were attacking the Hephthalites. Turkish envoys would later report to the Byzantine emperor that there were some Avars who had submitted, but that about 20,000 had managed to escape, and this 20,000 would become the nucleus of the famed and fearsome Avar Khanate in the Balkans. The Byzantine chronicler, Menander the Guardsman, tells us that Ishtami said of the Avars, quote, They are not birds that they can take to the sky to escape the swords of the Turks, nor are they fish that they can take to the water and hide in the depths of the sea, but they must travel on the earth. When I have ended my war with the Hephthalites, I shall attack the Avars, and they shall not escape my might. But some of these Avars had fled, as steppe peoples could, and they did escape him, moving to the borders of the Roman Empire. In the year 557, the Byzantine historian Theophanes the Confessor reported, quote, At the same time, the strange race of the so-called Avars reached Byzantium, and everyone in the city thronged to gaze at them, as they had never seen such a people. They wore their hair very long at the back, tied with ribbons and plaited. The rest of their dress was like that of the other Huns. They had come as fugitives from their own country, to Scythia and Mysia, and sent envoys to Justinian asking to be admitted. End quote. The Avar Khanate, a Khanate of refugees, was then established on the Hungarian plain and consolidated control over the Ukraine and the steppes north and west of the Black Sea, much to the trepidation of the Roman state. But aside from not being able to completely subjugate the Avars, the Turks had been wildly successful on the western steppe. By the early 560s, Ishtami had extended Turkish power as far west as the Iron Gates of the Caucasus, the steppes on the north and the east of the Sea of Azov, and as far south as the Amudarya. And remember, this is only one half of the Turkish Khanate as a whole. North of the Amudarya, the great Silk Road cities and all of their wealth came under the rule of Ishtami and the Turks. To the west, virtually the whole steppe was under Turkish control. This was a level of power that no steppe empire had yet achieved. It was also a degree of centralization never before seen on the western steppes. We'll discuss the nature of Turkish government in a later episode, but in essence, the Turks had taken the relatively highly organized structures of government born on the Chinese borderlands and adapted to the steppe world and carried them west. Most importantly for the events in the west, they had formed a powerful and organized state just to the north of the Sassanid Empire and in communication with the Roman Empire based in Constantinople. But the Turkish alliance with the Sassanids would prove to be short-lived. The Sassanids and the Turks had joined together to destroy a common enemy, an enemy which had subjugated Iran in the lifetime of Shah Khosrau's father, and who had been an ally of the Turks' former masters, the hated Ruran Khanate. Without that common enemy, the relations between the two quickly broke down. This seems to have been driven in part by commercial interests. Both sides wanted to control the Silk Road trade routes, which inevitably brought them into conflict. The sources say that several Turkish embassies to the Sassanids ended up with the silk that they carried being burned. Maybe this was a type of Sassanid form of market controls, like late antiquity tariffs. Additionally, and this is sort of just speculation on my part because we really can't know this from the contemporaneous sources, but I think in part the Sassanids did not expect the Turks to be as highly organized and centralized as they were. 
In the past, the Iranians had experienced dealing with steppe peoples, including the Hephthalites, smaller Oruk Turkic confederations, the Avars, and others. But none of these confederations possessed the level of organization and sophistication of the Turkish Khanate. To borrow the Chinese term, these other steppe nomads were less cooked than the Turks. So the Sassanids, having defeated the Hephthalites, realized that they'd actually replaced a disorganized neighbor with an organized one, a scary enemy with a terrifying one. As the relations with the Sassanids broke down, the Turks turned to one of the main destinations of silk and the traditional bete noir of the Persian state, the Byzantine Empire. Now, the relationship between the Turks and the Byzantines is going to, of course, be increasingly important to our story. In a lot of ways, the relationship with the Byzantines' Greek descendants remains the foremost and most important complicated and at times tense relationship of modern-day Turks. And this is kind of where it all starts. And I think it's nice to note, good to note, important to note, that they actually started out as allies. The first embassy of the Turks to the Byzantines probably occurred in 563, three years after the Battle of Gölzaryan, and at the same time the Turks were consolidating their power over the western steppes. We have only one line from Theophanes the Confessor. Quote, In that same month, which was July, envoys arrived in Constantinople from Askel, king of the Hermakiones, who dwell inland of the barbarian nation near the ocean. End quote. Kirmiakionis is probably a Greek version of the Persian word Kirmikian, which was the name the Persians gave to the Turks in the very earliest years of their contact. So this is probably the first mention of Turks in Constantinople, almost a thousand years before the city would fall to their political descendants. When the first Turkish embassy arrived in Constantinople, it was the largest city in the world. The Great Walls, which their people would be destined to overcome, were already 200 years old. The great Hagia Sophia, the Hagia Sophia, which was destined to be a mosque after the Turks' conquest of the city, was a gleaming cathedral. The city was living through one of its great golden ages, which would only be surpassed by the golden age the descendants of these ambassadors would eventually inaugurate. These first Turkish ambassadors must have wondered at the size and grandeur of the city, completely unaware of the importance it would come to have for their people centuries later. We have more information about a Turkish embassy led to Constantinople by a certain Maniach in 568. Though sent by Ishtami as his representative, Maniach appears to have been a Manichaean, and maybe even a Sogdian, not an ethnic Turk. Again, the primary purpose of the mission from the Turks' perspective was commercial. It appears that Maniach was sent by Ishtami to Iran first and attempted to cut a deal with the Persians. By this time, however, Turkish relations with the Sassanids were very tense. The Sassanids rejected the proposed trade deal and burned the silk that Maniac carried. Menander also mentions that, quote, the majority of the Turkish envoys in Persia, and all but three or four, were murdered by a deadly poison mixed in with their food, end quote. As you can imagine, this is essentially an act of war. It must have been even more so for the Turks, as steppe culture carried heavy obligations regarding the treatment of guests and envoys. As a result, Maniach advised Ishtami that it would be better to cut a deal with the Romans. And so Ishtami sent Maniach, along with a gift of silk and a letter written in Sogdian to the then-sitting emperor Justin II. As a side note, I think this really shows the extent to which the Turks were intertwined with the economies of the Silk Road, and how Sogdian language and culture were influencing them. But while Maniach certainly discussed trade, he also discussed war. The Romans and the Turks now shared two common enemies the Sassanids and the Avars, who, remember, had fled the Turks 
and had established a khanate on the northern borders of Roman territory. Maniach proposed an alliance, both to defeat the Persians and to enforce Turkish sovereignty over the Avars, and the Romans agreed. I think it's interesting to note that the Turks spoke in terms of dominion over the Avars, not over Avar land or something like that, but over the people themselves. This kind of shows how they really retained the steppe worldview of property. The idea that dominion means lordship over the movable people and herds, as opposed to the land that they move upon. Menander reports of the meeting, quote, Thus the envoys enumerated the tribes subject to the Turks, and asked the emperor for peace and an offensive and defensive alliance between the Romans and the Turks. They added that they would be willing to crush those enemies of the Roman state who were pressing on the territory. As they were speaking, Maniac and those with him raised their hands on high, and swore upon their greatest oath that they were saying these things with honest intent. In addition, they called down curses upon themselves, even upon Ishtami and upon their whole race, if their claims were false and could not be fulfilled. In this way, the Turkish people became the friends of the Romans and established these relations with our state. End quote. Thus, the Turkish alliance with the Byzantines was born. From the Turkish perspective, the alliance had two main goals crush the Avars and cement Turkish rule on the steppes north of the Black Sea on the one hand, and work together to defeat the Persians on the other. But while the Romans needed Turkish assistance to attack the Sassanids, they were far less keen on the plans of the Turks with respect to the Avars. Having established themselves on the modern-day Hungarian plain, the Avars would always be a sword of Damocles hanging over Constantinople, ready to burst down whenever they wanted. Their relations with Rome were tense and violent. Theophanes notes in 573 that, quote, The Huns and the Slavs, a great mass of them rose up against Thrace, made war there and killed or captured many people, and Menander calls them invincible. But the Romans were also not eager to replace the Avars with the Turks. Their plan would be to get the Turks to help them defeat the Sassanids, while at the same time using diplomacy to play the Avars and the Turks off each other. Get them to fight each other to the north, don't allow the Turkish Khanate to spread to the Hungarian plain, and use the Turks to keep the Avars occupied and away from the walls of their great city. Maybe, having seen what happened to the Sassanids when the Turks replaced the Hephthalites, the Romans were not eager to have as direct neighbors a state like the Turkish Khanate. And this Roman reticence to really commit to the fight against the Avars would become a real sticking point between the two peoples in the future. There would be continuous embassies going back and forth between the Turkish Khanate and Byzantium. Incidentally, it was in connection with one of these embassies that the word Turk first appears in the Roman sources. This happened in 572, when Theophanes records the following, quote, There was another reason which disturbed Hosrael. For at that time the Huns, whom we are accustomed to call Turks, sent an embassy to Justin via the territory of the Alans, end quote. On the Roman side, a particularly important embassy was sent to the Turks in 569 to cement the peace and prepare for the war against the Sassanids. So we're going to end today discussing this embassy, as it's one of our primary sources for understanding the internal working of the Turkish Khanate that will be the focus of our next episode. This Roman embassy was headed by an ethnic Cilician named Zemarchus. They set out from Constantinople, most likely by boat to Crimea and then across the Ukrainian and southern Russian steppes, across the land held by the Alans just north of the Caucasus Mountains, which appears to have not really submitted to the Turks, and the lands of the various Oryk Turkic tribes who had submitted to the Turkish Khanate. They then came to the Silk Road cities of Sogdiana, 
Here the Turks sort of put on a demonstration of their ironworking in an attempt to sell iron to the Romans, you know, sort of still keeping up with the business that they had started all the way back in Altai. But the Romans weren't really that impressed. I think ironworking was way more impressive to steppe people than it was to someone like the Roman Empire. Before meeting Ishtami, the Roman embassy was brought before the shamans, who performed a ritual to bless and protect the embassy on its journey. The Romans say that the Turks took all of the baggage that was carried and placed it on the ground, where they then set fire to the branches with frankincense, and then they chanted a bunch of what the Romans call barbarous words in their Scythian tongue, and made noise with bells and drums, and waved it around the baggage. This seems to have been sort of a ritual purification, driving away the evil spirits and the evil beings that maybe the travelers had brought with them. They then led Zamarcus, the leader of the envoy, the leader of the embassy, through the fire himself, sort of to give him extra purification before he would meet Ishtami. These sorts of rituals were clearly part of a court ritual, underlying the Yabgu's place in the state and the importance of his presence. Like, you needed to be purified before coming to meet him. You couldn't just show up. And I think it also shows sort of the relationship of mutual support between the shamans and the state. The Romans then came to the moving capital of the Yabgu then at a place called Ektag, or Akda in modern Turkish, which means White Mountain. This mountain was likely a holy mountain to the Turks and the other steppe peoples. Now, it's important to note that this wasn't like a fixed capital city. This is just where Ishtami was staying at the time, near this holy mountain. The Turkic Khanate under the Yabgu was being administered as a nomadic state. Ishtami ruled the west from a saddle. Zamarcus was then led into Ishtami's presence, where Ishtami was in the tent, sitting on a golden throne with two wheels, which could be pulled by a horse. Think of the symbolism here. Even the golden throne is on wheels, the symbolic moving throne leading the western half of a khanat on the move. The embassy then spent the day getting drunk in the Yabgu's tent, which was covered with silk on the inside, a demonstration of the khanat's wealth. They didn't drink grape wine, though, but rice wine, basically sake. To me, this is sort of the perfect image of the transcontinental scope of the first Khanate, drinking sake with the Romans. They also drank kumis, which is this slightly alcoholic fermented horse milk, which I can just tell you from experience is absolutely vile. The Roman embassy then spent a couple of days drinking and discussing politics and commerce with the Turks in a variety of moving dwellings, essentially buildings carried on wagons. These contained sculptures, silk, golden urns, you know, other types of treasure. One of the dwellings had four golden peacocks, and there were wagons holding silver dishes, bowls, statues of animals, and so on. The Romans say the silver products were not inferior to the Roman kind. This was basically Ishtami's moving treasury, and it probably consisted both of the tribute of the settled peoples, mostly the Sogdians and the Bactrians, as well as gifts from the Sassanids. Ishtami would have brought this with him on the move. It couldn't just be left on the steppe while the capital was going somewhere else. According to the Romans, over the course of their discussions, the Romans and the Turks seemed to have come to an agreement to mutually attack the Sassanids. Ishtami ordered Zamarcus and 20 of his attendants to join him in an attack against the Persians, with the other Romans heading north of the Sogdian city-states. He also gifted Zamarcus a slave girl, which is horrifying from our perspective, but was just sort of common at the time. At this point, an embassy of the Persians arrived, just as Ishtami was on the march against the Sassanids. So now we have an interesting situation. Both Persian and Roman embassies are in the court of the Turks. The Romans seem to think that this was a coincidence, but far, far more likely is that this was planned. Ishtami was playing the Romans and the Persians off each other, implying that he'll attack the Persians to the Romans, 
and then taking a subgroup of the Romans and bringing in the Persian embassy to see who's going to give him a better deal. According to the Romans, Ishtami then complained about the Persians when they arrived, saying that they had wronged him and the Turks, and that the Persians argued about this with him. This led to a huge argument, and the Persians then left. Ishtami then summoned in the Romans, confirmed their alliance, and agreed to attack the Sassanids. Now, it's clear that at this point, Ishtami has a lot of issues with the Sassanids, but the Turkic Khanate was not yet really at war with the Sassanids. Probably, this was the classic relationship between the steppe tribes and their settled neighbors, one that the Turks would have learned with the Chinese, at times raiding, at times trading. But regardless, the relationship was clearly rapidly deteriorating. So after breaking with the Persians, Ishtami decided that the Roman alliance just made more sense. He agreed to an invasion of Iran and ensured that the Romans opened their markets up to Turkish silk. With the alliance cemented and hostilities with Iran growing, he sent the Roman embassy on their way back with a new ambassador of his own, as unfortunately Maniach had just died. The new ambassador was a Turk named Tagma and had the title Tarkan, which is sort of similar to Grand Vizier or Prime Minister, and given to officials who weren't members of the royal family itself. The Byzantine embassy then set off back to Constantinople with their Turkish counterparts, crossing deserts, rivers, and steppes. Interestingly, when they crossed the land of the Alans around the Sea of Azov, the Alans would not allow the Turks to come armed before their leader. This sort of implies that the Alans were more or less independent of the Turkic Khanate, though they likely recognized on some level the superior rank of the Khan and the Yabgu. Thus ended the first mission of the Romans to the Turks. The alliance between Byzantium and the Turks would result in the combined invasion of the Sassanid Empire. But before this invasion could occur, Ishtami Khan, the Yabgu, died in 575. He had expanded Turkish power vastly, beyond what anyone could have believed at the death of Bumin. The Turks were the overlords of the steppes as far as the Black Sea in the west and the Amu Darya in the south, holding all of the Silk Road city-states. And they had gained a powerful new ally, the Roman Empire, based in Constantinople, to fight their powerful new enemy, the Sassanid dynasty of Iran. But there were tensions. Ishtami's conquests in the west were so successful that they exacerbated the tensions within the Khanate. Because Ishtami, despite being called by the Romans the lord of the whole Khanate, was himself in some sense a vassal to the great Khan in the east, his nephew Mukan. Ishtami had laid the foundations of what would become the independent western Turkish Khanate. But at his death, his realm was not an independent political entity. Ultimate and supreme power rested in the east with the Ilig Khan. And it is to the east that we will return next time, as the Turkish Khanate grows in power, but sows the seeds of civil war. <laughs>